having to go through to Sunday school. Well, good morning and welcome and greetings from Trinity Baptist Church among the Tongas in Bokota Village in Limpopo Province. Uh, my name is Paul Schleilein, and our family has been ministering among the Tongas since 2006. We're grateful for the opportunity to be with you here uh, this morning, and I'm so grateful for uh, your pastor, Pastor Gideon, and his faithfulness to the scriptures. My family was not able to come with me uh, this weekend, although uh, one of my sons, Owen, is with me. And before we dig into the text this morning, I wanted to give just a brief overview of what the Lord is doing among the Tongas in our particular village. Uh, you can see there some of our people. Uh, we do all of our preaching in the Tonga language, so each uh, morning uh, we have two services, and I will exposit a passage in Tonga for our people, and then in the second service we've been going through a, a particular church history uh, a character, and then we'll take a little break, and then after that, we'll go to a neighboring village called Tiani, where we are doing another church plant. Uh, we live right there in the village, uh, among the people, and the Lord has allowed us to see uh, some people come to Christ and discipled, and now they're being used to tell others about Jesus. Next, uh, there's our family, and uh, my wife, Melinda, and our seven children, uh, there is Audrey, our oldest, on the left. Her name is uh, Minkateko in Tonga, which means uh, uh, blessings. And then there's Nathan, or Tiani, which means be strong. Then you have uh, Lawson in the middle. His name is Kwatsi. Owen, who is with me, his name is Ansakisi, uh, which means happy. And then uh, Hitekani, or Juliana, on the bottom, far right, is, um, is Clara, Lulama, which means righteous, righteousness. And then... On the top left is little Luke, and uh, his name is Bonani, which comes from the song, Bonan Watahose Yesu, in song, which means, look, here comes the Lord Jesus Christ. Next. Uh, there we are up there in the Limpopo province. Uh, we border Mozambique and Botswana and Zimbabwe. And uh, I came uh, in 2006 to join uh, our teammates, the Myers family. And we work together as teammates doing the same kind of ministry work. We live in a little village called Bukota, and it's an area called Sanganani, which means gather or get together. And it's one among the largest uh, concentrations of Tongas in South Africa, although there are also two million Tonga speakers in Mozambique as well. Next. Uh, here are some of the Tonga people. The Tongas love children. They are a peaceable people. Uh, they love to laugh, and the more they laugh, the more they are prone to fall to the ground while they're laughing. And each time that we have a child, they will say, Shibongo Shakula, which means your surname is growing. And uh, that is true. They love children, and we love them. Next. Uh, here are some of our church people. On the far left is Reginald Ntuli, and he came to Christ as... Uh, a, a young man, even less than a teenager, probably 10 years old. And at this very moment, I believe, this young man is preaching in our pulpit in Trinity Baptist. And so we're thankful for those who have come to Christ and are now telling others about the Lord Jesus. Next. 
Uh, we don't just want to plant churches. We want to plant indigenous churches. And historically, indigenous churches have been defined by the three selves. Self-governing, self-propagating, and self-sustaining. So in that sense, uh, we want selfish churches. And we are trying to plant churches that are able to govern themselves. There's not some kind of hierarchy over them. We want to lay the foundation. We want to see elders on their own and then leave them behind. There are times when they call me Mufundis. They might call me pastor, but ultimately I'm a missionary. and I'm there to plant the foundation and then leave it with them. We want it to be self-governing. That's all through Scripture. Self-propagating, that is, they're able to share the gospel on their own. They're able to disciple on their own. And then self-sustaining. And that is, they're able to give and sustain themselves on their own. And so we're very careful how we use foreign funds because we don't want to cripple the church, but we want to teach them how to sustain themselves on their own. Next. Uh, that means that we do a lot of ev evangelism, and there are two of our church members on the left, and then the church that we built, we built with our own hands. Uh, we cut down the trees, we made several of the bricks ourselves, we laid all the bricks to the building ourselves, we put in the windows, we put in the roof, and we're trying to teach the people to do it on their own so that we're following the principles of church planting in the book of Acts. Next. Well, there's uh, one of our choirs singing, and on the far left is Wisley Makovele. He comes from a neighboring village called uh, Riverplatz, and he is going to be uh, doing the teaching in Tiani today in our neighboring church plant. Next. The prosperity gospel is the greatest deterrent to our ministry. It's not Islam, it's not Roman Catholicism, it's the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel. It's the false teaching that says Jesus Christ came to earth to make you healthy and wealthy. Acts 14.22 says, we must enter into the kingdom of God through many trials. It's hard to follow Jesus Christ. You'll see posters like this all throughout our area and throughout this area and throughout Malawi and throughout Congo and throughout Zimbabwe. Interesting, notice the placard on the left. Notice this is a, a typical prosperity poster. On the bottom, Atandamuka actually means we're exploding. But they spelled it incorrectly. And, and they're, actually, they're actually speaking the truth. They're actually saying overtly, we're exploiting. The irony is that's exactly what they're doing. They're trying to exploit people, those who are ignorant, those who do not know what the Bible says, those who think that if they just sow a seed or if they just give the money, maybe they'll have twins, maybe they'll get a job, maybe they'll be healed. Or you can see everything is about deliverance or financial prosperity or some kind of big victory that the Lord will give us. You pray for us. The Lord would use his word to run quickly and cast down these kinds of false teachings. Next. If you'd like to know more about us, you can go to our website there or you can reach out to us on WhatsApp or on the telephone. We love the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to see many come to Christ through the preaching of his word. And we'd love to have you visit us. You're always welcome. 
We're about an hour and a half north of Polokwane, not too far from the Zimbabwean border, and you're always welcome to visit us and to worship with us. Well, with that being said, let's turn to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And this morning, I'd like to preach a message entitled, The Missionary Jesus Rejected. And we're going to learn the story about Jesus and his healing of a man with a demon. I'd like to read verses 1 and 2, and then go to the Lord in prayer before we dig into the text. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse number 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You are the blessed Lord. Forever and ever, yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and all that is in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom. And you are to be exalted as head over all. We bow before you this morning acknowledging the authority of your holy word. We ask you to help us to think carefully about evangelism. Help us to think carefully how to tell the lost around us about the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. I have a pastor friend from the U.S. who has told me that he talks more people out of going into missions than going into missions. And the reason he does that is not because he is opposed to the Great Commission work around the world. He's a great proponent of missions. Rather, he sees far too many people that want to go away. They want to go afar. They want to go to the other side of the world and yet who are disinterested and unable to give the gospel in their very own place. Today, we're going to look at an example of Jesus urging a man to remain right where he is to tell others the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, when we come to Mark chapter 5, it begins with these words, they came to the other side of the sea. Well, it really wasn't that easy. The previous passage tells us in verse 37 that there was a great windstorm, and these veteran fishermen 
were terrified. I remember several years ago, I took a trip visiting the Comorian Islands just off the coast of Tanzania. They are 99.9% Sunni Muslim. If you look on a map, those group of three islands, you can almost not even see the space between them. It's a millimeter between one island to the other. I'm thinking, hey, to get in a boat and to sail from one place to another, it'll take a few minutes. The boat ride was nine hours, sailing on the open sea in the ocean. I knew it was going to be a rough trip when they were had, handing out vomit bags to the people before we even left. Nine hours from one place to the other. And there were times when it was terrifying. Well, here they are, the disciples. They're in a great windstorm. They're terrified. They get Jesus. Jesus comes up and stills the storm. And the disciples who know better or ought to have known better say, who then is this? Contrast that a few verses later, as we will see that the demons knew exactly who Jesus was and called him the Son of the Most High. And now they reach the eastern portion of the sea, and they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. This particular place has slopes, cliffs, sharply running into the sea. And upon arrival, we are introduced immediately to the central character that Jesus will speak to. It's the demon-possessed man of the Gerasenes. And this brings us to our first point, and it is this, the sinner's previous enslavement. The sinner's previous enslavement. We'll see this in verses 1 through 14. And we're going to see two descriptions Two words that describe the demon-possessed man's influence on this particular sinner. Two words describe the demon's influence on this man. Here's the first one. Destructive. Destructive or ruinous. Now, this is important because although this may be an extreme case of a man possessed by a demon... This is the same way, in many ways, that Satan deals with many sinners today. First of all, we're going to see the ruinous and destructive influence that this demon, these demons have on this man. Let's look at some descriptions. First of all, he's aggressive. Look at verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately... There met him a man. So he's aggressive. He comes immediately to Jesus. Second, this man is isolated. He's living in the tombs, verse 2 says. Third, he's morally unclean. He's called at the end of verse 2 an unclean spirit. Fourth, this man is powerful. The demons are powerful because verses 3 and 4 say no human or no chain could hold him. It says no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles into pieces. I read a story 
recently about a man in the 1800s who was known as the strongest man in the world. His, name was, his surname was Breitbart. And they said this man was so strong that he could take, he could take horseshoes and bend them in half. He could take shackles and, and sheets of iron and rip them. They said he could climb a ladder with a baby elephant and he could climb the ladder to the top. On one occasion, he was doing a particular feat where he took these large stakes and he was driving the stakes into 25 millimeter thick pieces of hard oak wood without a hammer. And on this occasion, he missed and drove it into his leg. He got blood poisoning. They had to amputate both of his legs and he died. That was the strongest man in the world. That's this man right here. He's taking chains. He's taking shackles. And nothing can control this man. He is powerful. Not only is he powerful, but he's, he's energetic. It tells us in verse 5, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out. He needed little rest as he roamed the hills. He was also masochistic. He was cutting himself with stones. Think, there were 6,000 demons expended on this particular man to destroy him. This man will not know the truth. This man will be destroyed. However else other people may know the Lord Jesus, we will destroy at least this man. And the lesson is this. Satan exists to destroy God's work. The mark of satanic influence is to destroy. Satan and his demons will do everything they can to destroy the work of God. Satan tempted Eve to sin against God. Satan tempted Jesus to sin against his father. Satan uses lies. He uses deception. He uses murder, doubt, guilt, fear, confusion, sickness, envy, pride, slander to stop the gospel. Satan, then, Satan today, will use any tactic to blind people to the truth. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and of the glory of Christ. Where you find demonic influence today, you will find destruction. John 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But there's good news. Because not only is Satan and his demons destructive, but their power is also limited. Even though these demons are powerful and beyond the strength of the town, Jesus is in total control of this situation from the very beginning. 
Let me give you five descriptions of how Jesus was in total control. First, when Jesus comes on the scene, the demon-possessed man runs immediately and falls before Jesus. I mean, imagine you and your spouse, you're going off on a date, and you leave your little children with the babysitter, and while you're gone, the children are crazy, and they're climbing up the walls, and they're hanging on the lights, and they're out of control, and everything the babysitter tries to do, she can't control them, and then the moment the door opens and they see Father, the children immediately act perfectly, and they run to their parents with obedience. That's the way these demons are running before the Lord Jesus Christ. Second, they recognize Jesus as the Son of the Most High. Interesting. There is a difference between knowing who Jesus is and believing and loving who Jesus is. Let's not forget James 2 verse 19 that says, Even the demons believe and shudder. Very often, as we do evangelism in our area, and I start sharing the gospel, in order to get this strange missionary away from them, they'll kind of use religious-type language. They'll say, ah, oh, God is one. You know, we all kind of believe the same idea. Or they'll say, that means God is here. I believe that God exists. Believing that God exists does not make anyone a Christian any more then these demons recognizing that Jesus is the Son of the Most High would make them redeemed creatures. Next, they beg Jesus to stop torturing them in verses 7 and 8. Look at verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Verse 9. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? Jesus does not ask this because he doesn't know the answer. Jesus knows everything. Jesus is in control. Jesus is the teacher. The demons are the students. Jesus asked the questions and the demons who are before out of control, the teacher can't control them. Now the teacher, the real teacher, has come into class. And the demons, they obey. What is your name, Jesus says. He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, Legion was a Roman unit of 6,000 soldiers. And so... There's a lot of demons inside this man, and they immediately obey. And they even ask for permission. Look at verse 10. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Please allow us to go somewhere else. Don't judge us in the abyss, which, by the way, is the judgment that awaits all demons, 2 Peter 2, verse 4. We don't want that now. Have mercy on us. And so the demons are asking for permission. You see, Satan always wants to destroy. And if Satan cannot destroy a creature of God that was created in his image, then he'll go for second best and 
destroy a creature of God that is not created in his image, the animals. And so they run these 2,000 pigs off the cliff. Verse 13, so he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned into the sea. Satan and his demons have limited power and are under God's control. They need his permission. Remember the story of Job? Satan was like a dog sitting at the master's table that would not move even an inch because his master's eye was always upon him. Satan could only do what God allowed him to do. We have this idea today that Here's God on one side, and here's Satan on the other, and they clash and they fight with one another. No, God is in complete control of his creatures. Demons do not know the future, for only God does, Isaiah 46, 9. Demons do not know our thoughts, cannot see our thoughts like Jesus does, Matthew 9, verse 4. Now, before we leave this point, I want to caution you with two extremes that we can take from this particular passage the one extreme is thinking that all evil and all sin is from Satan and from demons. And whenever anything bad happens, we blame it on demons, we blame it on witchcraft, we blame it on Satan. Charismatics will often rebuke the spirit of disagreement if there is Gluttony or greed among the church. Let us cast out the demon or spirit of gluttony. Or if there is adultery in the home, let us cast out the spirit of adultery. In African traditional religion, much is blamed on demons and witchcraft. If someone is hit by a car while walking to work and dies... Or if a child falls out of a tree at school and is killed, the explanation is that there must have been witchcraft at play. If a man has two wives and the children of one of the wives is healthy and the children of the other wife is sickly, the mother of the sickly will think that there's been witchcraft involved. Just an idea in Tsonga culture of how prevalent the idea of witchcraft is, the most common surname among the Tsongas is witches. Baloi, or Valoi, means witches. So let's not go to one extreme and say everything. We point everything to witchcraft. But then we can go to the other extreme. And we can look at this particular passage and we can say, well, this is another era. This is extreme. That was back in Jesus' day. We don't have to worry about this kind of thing anymore. Demons don't exist anymore. Well, consider this. Demonic activity throughout the history of the world has been marked by false religion. Listen to this passage in Deuteronomy 32, verse 16 where Moses calls false gods demons. They stirred God to jealousy with strange gods, with abominable practices. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed 
two demons, which were no gods. Another name for Allah is Satan. Following African traditional religion is following demons. Following the Pope, the Dalai Lama, the Virgin Mary, the Jehovah's Witnesses is not just antichrist, it is demonic. Demonic activity is also marked by child sacrifice. Psalm 106, verse 35, they mingled with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served idols which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to idols? No. They sacrificed them to demons. Every abortion clinic is a house of demons. Demonic activity is marked by bodily self-destruction. The prophets of Baal cried out loud and cut themselves. And do we not live in a world today of bodily mutilation? Let us not think that somehow we are not prone to the demonic and satanic influences today. Many people that come to Christ today will come out of similar demonically oppressive settings just like this man. Ephesians 6.12 For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Well, we saw, first of all, the sinner's previous enslavement. Let's move next now to the sinner's powerful emancipation. Emancipation means release, freedom from bondage. The sinner's powerful emancipation from verses 14 through 17. These verses give us four descriptions of the new man. He's been changed. We find in verse 15, he's clothed and he's in his right mind. In the parallel account in Luke 8, 35, we're given two more descriptions of this man. The demons had departed him and he's seated at the feet of Jesus. How else can we explain this transformation other than the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Never has the world seen such power as we see here today. Mark 1.27, he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Oh, my dear brother and sister today, my dear sinner here today who may not know the Lord Jesus Christ, your sin may be great, but Jesus is greater. Your trials may be hard, but Jesus is mightier. Your despair may be deep, but Jesus' love is deeper. Your scars may be firm, but Jesus' wounds are stronger. This is what Jesus was talking about in Mark, in Matthew 12, 29. 
where he said, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. What does that mean? That means Jesus is entering the strong man's house and the strong man is Satan. And his house is the sphere of this world where he keeps sinners in bondage. And Jesus frees his people from bondage. You know, you would think that the crowd would be happy with this. You would think the townspeople would rejoice. But instead, they begged Jesus to leave in verse 17. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Why? It's a lot of money lost. A lot of bacon gone. Their business has been ruined. Often the world will not rejoice at your conversion. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. Well, that's the sinner's powerful emancipation. Finally, let's look in verses 18 through 20. The sinner's persuasive evangelism. Here, the man begs Jesus that he may go with him. Look at verse 18. And as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might go with him. You know, this story is really the story of three beggars. The demons beg in verse 12, and they beg Jesus to enter the pigs. The townspeople begged in verse 17. They begged that Jesus would leave. And here, the convert, the new man in Christ begs, verse 18. He begs that he may go with Jesus. True Christians saved by grace don't have to beg, or I should say, do not have to be begged to be with Jesus. Paul said in Philippians 1.23, my desire is to be with Christ. It's far better. You know what our converts look like today in modern evangelicalism? It's just the opposite. We have to beg them to go to church. We have to beg them to be with other Christians. We have to beg them to work up their courage to hand out just one small track at the grocery store, even while both of them are wearing masks. Instead, this new man's life was characterized by three things. Fellowship with Jesus, obedience to his word, and evangelizing everyone he knew. Now, we might ask why Jesus rejected this prospective missionary. Verse 19 says, And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Well, this is not the only time Jesus does this. There are times in the Gospels when Jesus tells people not to say anything. Sometimes this is called the messianic secret. And Jesus does this, for example, in Mark 1.44, to avoid confusion 
and to avoid the miracle seekers who are coming to Jesus and hindering the main objective of his coming to earth. Sometimes Jesus makes it hard to follow him because he doubts that particular person's conversion. But not here. Here, Jesus is actually confirming, not doubting this man's conversion, by urging him to tell his family and his friends about the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says to this man, don't go, stay. Home evangelism. And this man immediately obeys, not only telling his friends at home, but we find the word Decapolis, which is a group of ten cities, and he becomes a faithful traveling evangelist. These days, if we refuse any volunteer that wants to go with us, it seems cruel, but Jesus did that very thing. This new convert was overwhelmed with the mercy of the Lord Jesus and had to tell everyone he knew about him. At this point, I cannot leave this passage with you walking away saying, I need to tell others about Jesus like this man. That, that's right. But I'd like to close with practical section here and give you 21 practical examples of home evangelism. You see this passage right here in verses 19 and 20, this man going out and telling others about Christ. And I want to give you 21 practical ways that you can leave your seat today and take that idea and tell others about Christ. And what I did is I went through the book of Acts, starting in chapter 1, and I tried to tally as many examples as I could of the early church and of the apostles and how they told others about the Lord Jesus. I'm going to go quickly through these. I have many, but I'll probably give just 20 or so. Number one, engage in stranger evangelism. Acts 1 verse 8 which tells us that we are to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. You know why friendship, so-called friendship evangelism is so popular? It's because we're terrified of giving our faith to strangers. You know, there really are very few examples of friendship evangelism in the scriptures. Acts 1.8 says that we're to preach the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth, which means we're to leave our friends and our family and not just tell them, but tell strangers. Second, give the gospel in the sinner's own language. Now, you may say, oh, am I supposed to learn from scratch Zulu or Pedi or Afrikaans? No. That might be a good idea. But at least learn how to greet in another person's language. You would be amazed the bridges that creates. The Tsonga language is the golden key in our ministry. It opens almost every door. How many times have I met a police officer? There's obviously a wall of animosity between us. And I start speaking to him in Tsonga and suddenly we're best friends. In Acts chapter 2, we find them speaking in tongues which are nothing more 
than languages. And the Bible says when the people heard their own language, they were bewildered, completely amazed, and perplexed. You want to see people completely amazed? Here in South Africa's rainbow nation filled with foreign languages, walk up to a stranger, ask what their home language is, and at least learn how to greet them in their language. That'll be a beautiful bridge to the gospel. Third, preach in the open air. Chapter 2, verse 14, Peter lifted up his voice to a crowd. This is needed today. Not everyone, but some terrifying. Don't listen to your fear. We need people in the open air preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and how exhilarating it is for people that you've never met before hanging on every word that you're saying. Fourth, lifestyle evangelism. Chapter 2, verses 44 through 47. You know, when God's people fellowshiped daily and when they acted holy and when they lived godly lives, chapter 2 and verse 47 says the result was people were saved daily. Now, I have a problem with lifestyle evangelism if we mean by that all we're going to do is live a godly life, but we're not going to say anything. But if we use our godly living as a bridge to give them the gospel, that's a beautiful thing. Tertullian was one of the great men in church history. He was an unbeliever in his early days. But then he said when he witnessed the courage of the Christians that were killed by the lions in the Colosseum, when he could see the lifestyle of those Christians and how they suffered for the Lord Jesus, his heart was changed and he was converted. Number five, talk to the sick and the destitute. Chapter three, verses four through six, when the apostles are going up to the temple to pray and here comes a beggar. Let me ask you, when you come to a robot here in Joburg, and there's a beggar, what do you do? Is it not fair to say that most of us have one goal in mind, and that is do not make eye contact. Just keep your eyes straight. This is what we must not do. Look them in the eye. That's what chapter 3 says in the example. They say in chapter 3 in verse 4, look at us. When we look someone in the eye, That's hard on our conscience. Let's just not look at him. Look him in the eye, roll down your window and say, here's a gospel track, it'll change your life. Number six, perhaps the most obvious and yet the most ignored. Use words. You say, of course I'm supposed to use words if I'm giving the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 31, it says they continue to speak the word with boldness. There's a man named St. Francis of Assisi. The famous man in church history. Some of you have heard of Cape St. Francis, even here in South Africa. 
St. Francis of Assisi supposedly said, always give the gospel. If necessary, use words. Isn't that a good line? Always give the gospel. If necessary, use words. I read an article recently entitled, Was St. Francis a Sissy? A sissy is a coward. A sissy is someone who's afraid to give the gospel. And in fact, as you look through history, he never said that. Look, the Bible says in Romans, how shall they hear without a preacher? We've got to use words. We've got to present the gospel in a way that people can hear that they're lost and without a savior, that they've broken God's commands, that we love darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil, that John 8:44, Jesus looked at the most religious men of his day and he said, you are of your father the devil. And because of our sin, the wages for that sin is death and eternity in hell. And there's one hope, and it's Jesus Christ who came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He rose again three days later. And all those who turn from their sin and look to the Lord Jesus Christ, 0% me, 100% Christ, I look to him and trust in him. That's the message you must give, and they will not hear that message by simply a godly life. Use words. Number seven, give to and promote gospel projects. Chapter 4, 32 through 37. The Bible says the early church They had all things in common. There was no needs. They were constantly giving, giving, giving. One of my favorite websites, evangelistic websites, livingwaters.com. I would encourage you to go to that website, livingwaters.com. Thousands of tracts and thousands of videos on evangelism. Give to that ministry. Order tracts from that ministry. Fill your car with gospel literature. And if you have a child in your house who no longer listens to the gospel message, what you need to do is one night in the evening at family worship, you gather the family together, tell them you're going to watch a movie, and then you play one of the gospel interviews that they show on that website, hundreds of them. And the Lord could use that to bring your child to faith or bring tears of joy and laughter. Number eight, go house to house. We find this all over in the book of Acts, chapter 5, chapter 18, chapter 20. Yes, it can be terrifying. Go house to house. Number nine, encourage evangelism immediately after conversion. That's what the woman at the well did. That's what we find in chapter 9, verse 20 in Acts. Don't use generic language after a person is converted. Now you just need to worship God. Well, yes, we need to worship God, but you can't worship God if you don't obey God, and the Bible says that we need to take the gospel to every creature. Number 10, gather when it's dangerous. Chapter 5, verses 12 through 13, that's what the early church did. The Bible says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ 
And when we fail to evangelize and when we fail to gather when it's dangerous, what we're really saying is that we're ashamed of the gospel. Number 11, add different voices. Hey, is there someone that you've been giving the truth of the gospel to and you just can't get through to them? Bring a different person along. Give them a different voice. In Acts, we find they sent Barnabas, and then something's happening over here. Okay, let's bring Peter, and let's bring John. Give them another voice. Okay, we'll have this pastor. We'll have this elder. Hey, we'll have this older lady at our church. We'll have her sit down with this person, give them the gospel. Give them a different voice to hear. Number 12, free your pastor to evangelize. Maybe your pastor, who's a gifted evangelist, spends so much time with administration that he can't even find time to evangelize. Acts 6, 2 through 4, we found the deacons of the church taking care of those tasks to free up the pastors to evangelize. Next, pray and sing in public so others can hear you. How many of you, when you go to a restaurant, pray to yourself or whisper so quietly that no one can hear you or have one eye open to make sure no one's looking at you strangely. When Paul and Silas were in prison, they sang and they prayed so that others could hear them. Hey, listen, Silas, we don't want to bother them. This is their jail cell too. No. The Bible says the prisoners were listening to them and evidently the prison guard was among them because he was later converted. Look, this is not a case of standing on the street corner for pride's sake just so you can be looked at. Jesus condemned that in Matthew 6. But how many of you look for opportunities to pray and let other people hear you pray so that they hear the gospel? Just a few days ago we... We're in the Joburg area, and we were picking up a piano. And it was just me with my family, and I, I was, we were purchasing it from a, from a single woman. And I told Melinda, how am I going to, how are we going to move this piano by myself? So in comes a woman, and there behind her is her boyfriend, and he's a bodybuilder. And I thought, this is perfect. It's a bodybuilder. And uh, he used to be in, in a uh, part of the U.S., and he was a boxer as well. I thought, a boxer and a bodybuilder, this is perfect. So we moved out this piano. I was looking for ways to share the gospel, and I just couldn't quite get it in there. And as we learned, this was a boyfriend, a girlfriend, living together for decades, long time, living in sin. And at the end, I said, hey, let's pray get them together and we get in a circle and we start praying and I start sharing the gospel and I start hearing next to me the bodybuilder he starts he starts crying open up one eye starts crying and there's girlfriend next to him she's weeping she's watering the pavement in front of us with tears we shared the gospel I shared verses in that prayer I wanted them to hear that prayer You should make it a goal whenever you meet with anyone, a stranger, hey, let's close in prayer. Not many people will say no to that. They might say no to your tract. They might say no to the gospel message, but hey, could I pray with you? That's a great way 
to share the gospel. Next, bring people into your home. Acts 18.26. Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila brought them into their home. You know, Cyprian of Carthage was one of the great church fathers. He actually wasn't converted until his mid-40s. The way he came to Christ was there was a man living in his home who was a pastor, and he gave him the gospel. Next, debate. Debate, chapter 17, verse 18, chapter 18, verse 28. It says that the Epicureans and the Stoics conversed with Paul. That word conversed means to express differences of opinion in a forceful way. It means to present contrasting viewpoints. It means to debate and discuss forcefully. There's a great method of evangelism on college campuses. I had a debate some years ago with a Muslim. There's hundreds of Muslims before us. To my knowledge, none of them came to Christ, but there was a vendor man who heard the message. He professed faith in Christ. He shared Christ with his sister. She came to Christ, baptized, and now she's one of the strongest members of our teammates' church. Next, teach outside the box, chapter 16, 13 through 14. How many of you, when I mentioned go door to door, you said, aha, we can't do that anymore. This is the new South Africa. There's gates and there's burglar bars and there's palisades. We can't go door to door anymore. Okay, then think outside the box and find another method. You remember the story in Acts 16 when Paul goes to Philippi? Paul's method every Sabbath was to go into the synagogue, synagogue, synagogue. But in Philippi, there was no synagogue. So what does Paul do? I can rest and relax. No, he says, I'll go to the river and find someone to evangelize. He finds Lydia and leads her to Christ. Think outside the box. Next. Pass on good evangelistic preaching. The great John Owen at age 26 was planning on listening to a sermon. This was before he was converted. He went to a church to hear a famous preacher. The famous preacher was sick. They said, let's get out of here and go to another church. He said, no, I want to stay here and listen to old nobody, a farmer that no one knew. That sermon brought the great John Owen to Christ. Give away literature. Next, to give away literature. John Bunyan was converted by the two books that his new bride brought into the home. He became one of the greatest Christians in church history. John Huss, another great man in church history, was converted by reading a gospel cartoon. Well, there's many more. Let me just end with one more, and that is rebuke the sins of others. How many of you have a neighbor how many of you have a coworker? You know they're living in sin, but you're fearful to say something about it. Yes, speak in love. Yes, speak in a spirit of meekness and gentleness. But don't fall into a trap that says love never says a harsh word. Love rejoices in the truth. There's a great story of John Hooper. He was one of the Marian martyrs who was led to his death by Bloody Mary, 1500s. When he was a pastor, there was a man named Sir Kingsley who was living in adultery. John Hooper rebuked him for that. And Kingsley, who was a very wealthy man, was so angry, he cursed John Cooper to his face, and then he punched him in his face. Now, go on many years later, John Hooper is about to be killed for his faith. He's in the prison cell on the last evening 
he hears a knock at the door. Who is it? It's Sir Kingston, the same man he had rebuked many years earlier. And in tears, Kingston said to me, I thank God that I know you, since God chose you to call me a lost sinner. Well, today we learned a story about a man that Jesus rejected as a missionary. He was enslaved in sin, he was powerfully converted, and then he told everyone he knew about the